0: Let's turn to Hebrews chapter 2, and you may want to hold on to Genesis chapter 1 and Ephesians chapter 2, because I'll be referencing both those places a few times, well, the beginning of Genesis, Ephesians 2, and then our study will be in Hebrews 2. Last week, we studied Hebrews chapter 1, and the message of Hebrews 1 is that God loved us so much that in this final stage, he spoke to us not by a a prophet, this final age, he didn't speak to us through a prophet, he didn't speak to us through an angel, but he spoke to us by a son. The highest ranking entity in the universe, the almighty sinless son of God, who is, as we saw, the initiation and the culmination of God's goodwill toward man. God in every age has desired to fellowship with man. He is the culmination of all of that, the initiation of all of that. Now, Hebrews 2, when it starts off its chapter, it says, because Jesus is superior to any prophet or angel, we should pay really close attention to what he said and what he did. And that is the context we find ourselves in the middle of when we come to Hebrews chapter 2, verse 5. And in the rest of this chapter, we're going to see why things in our world are such a mess, even though Jesus is now the King of kings and Lord of lords. And we will learn how he is still Emmanuel, God with us, in these messy times so while we talked last week about the majesty of the Son of God, the wonder of the incarnation, the idea that the Son of God is all his majesty that he became a man, today we're going to talk about the majesty of the Son of Man, the one who became a man, and what he did as a man and his elevated position because of how he succeeded where we miserably failed. So chapter 2 of Hebrews, verse 5, it says, for unto the angels has he not put in subjection the world to come whereof we speak? But one in a certain place testified saying, what is man that you are mindful of him or the son of man that you visit him? You made him a little lower than the angels. You crowned him with glory and honor and did set him over the works of your hands. You have put all things in subjection under his feet for in that he put all in subjection under him. He left nothing that is not put under him. But now we see not yet all things put under him. But we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he by the grace of God should taste death for every man. In Hebrews chapter 2 here, we're going to look at God's original plan for the world. or are to look at what the, how we made a mess of that original plan. And then God's rescue plan through Jesus. So let's start off by looking at God's original plan here in these first few verses. In verse 5, he says, "'For unto the angels has he not put in subjection the world to come, whereof we speak?' Uh, the writer of the book of Hebrews says, we, I've been telling you about this world that's coming. You know, in, in uh, Hebrews 1, 2, he, he explains who God spoke to us through prophets and other ways in the past, has in these last days spoken unto us by a son, whom he has appointed the heir of all things. This is the world that's coming. So he says, for unto the angels he has not put in subjection the world to come, which we've been talking to you about in chapter 1. He says, but God did something else. Now, this is interesting because the concept of putting in subjection, it means to bring something under the firm control of someone. So there's an author here who's going to take something and bring it under someone else's control. Now, what is going to be brought under control? It says the world to come. Now, the world here is a different word for world than in chapter 1, verse 2, where it says, by whom Jesus also, not as only the heir of all things, but he is the one who made the worlds. The word therefore world refers to periods of time, to ages. And we talked about that last week, how in every time, in every age, you know, Jesus was instrumental in communicating God's goodwill toward men. He was instrumental, part of every covenant. He He was involved in all those things as the Son of God. But here the word is not the same word. Here it refers to our world, the earth, the inhabited land. It stands in contrast to the heavens. You know, we can send people off-world, so to speak, but we have to send our world with them for them to survive off-world, right? We have to send our environment with them for them to survive. This is our world, the place God designed for us, He created for us. And this world, this planet, this world that is coming, in other words, the one about to come here, this future world, this something God is going to bring under His control is our planet in its final age. The someone who will be in charge, He tells us here, is not the angels. In fact, the angels were never in charge of the earth. He goes back to the beginning in verse 6. He says, but one, and he's referring to Psalm 8 here, David, the psalmist, who wrote these words, but one in a certain place testified, saying, what is man that you are mindful of him? Quoting Psalm 8, verse 4. Now, it's interesting, the word testify here means to state as a fact. This is how things were. To state as a fact. And he quotes David, Psalm 8, 4, what is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you visit him? Now, that's interesting because in verse 5, he's talking about a world to come, but then it seems like he goes backwards in verse 6. So which is it? Is this a prophecy of Jesus coming to reign, you know, that he will be the one who's in charge? Or is it how God originally designed the earth to be? The answer is yes. (laughs) It's both. In Genesis chapter 1, verse 28, we read very clearly how God designed our planet to be. It tells us that he created Adam and Eve, it says in verse 27, so God created man in his own image, and the image of God created he him, male and female created he them. And what did God do? Genesis 1, 28, and God blessed them, and God said unto them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the fowl of the air and over every living thing that moves upon the earth. That was how God designed it to be. God's original design before we messed it up was he gave dominion to us. And so David writing later before Christ has come, he is blown away by this. In Psalm 8 verse 4, which Hebrews chapter 2 uh, verse 6 quotes here, he says, what is man that you are mindful of him? Thinking back to creation, he, 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 he... the phrase there, what is man, it speaks of, uh, of something being small and insignificant. You know? You, know, you know, if I were to look at an ant and go, what is this ant? You know, I'm not saying that because it's this massive thing. You Saying it because it's something small and insignificant. What is man? That you are mindful of him. We talked about this last week that when God remembers something, that's what this word mindful means, that you would remember him. The word remember means to be actively involved in in a situation, to be actively involved in someone's life. So when it says when God remembered Noah, it's not that he forgot that Noah was in a boat. It was that he was going to take an active role in what was going on in Noah's life again. So David says when God created Adam and Eve, he was actively involved in their lives. And that's what we find. We find God walking with them in the cool of the garden. God wasn't just a creator who just said, Boom, enjoy, and, you know, write me a card someday, you know? He, he created them, and he desired a relationship with them. He was actively involved with them. He was in the garden with them. He had this, this, this fellowship with them in the garden. And David is blown away by that. But he doesn't stop there, because he continues, and he goes, or the son of man that you should visit him. Well, who's the son of man? Well, we know that Adam was created in the image of God, right? And then we get to Genesis chapter 5, and it tells us that Adam's children were created in his image, right? That they bore his nature, his image. It was a different situation. The son of man here is not referring to Jesus. It's referring to Adam's descendants with their sinful nature, that we bear that mark now. We are still image bearers of God, but it's tainted. We have a sin nature now, right? You know? We may be made in his image, but we're also made in Adam's image. Adam rebelled against the Lord, and all of his descendants perpetuated that rebellion. And so David, as he writes this, he says, why would you you visit rebels and the sons of rebels? The word there, visit, it means to care for, to look after with a sense of responsibility. What an odd thing for someone to do. You know, if someone's my enemy, I I don't tend to think, oh, I need to look after them. I need to care for them. They're my responsibility. No, when someone decides to be directly opposed to me, the general reaction that most people have, myself included, is to be like, I'm done. You're over there. I'm over here. And yet the Lord, when we rebelled against him, we declared that we would not be for him, but that we would go our own way. He saw us as his responsibility, someone he wanted to care for. That's how he viewed us. And David, he is blown away by this. He could maybe see why God would be involved with Adam and Eve. But ultimately, the question he's asking is, Lord, why are you still so involved with me? Why do you still care about me? And that's a great question. Why would the Lord be involved with us? Look at what we've done to his world. Why would he care? Because he's not like us. He loves us. He takes responsibility to care for us even though he owes us nothing. God doesn't, we don't, you know, why, why God, why God? That's a question we all ask at times. But, but it should be a different question. God, why did you allow this evil to happen, we often ask. But the question should be, why do you even care still? Why are you still involved? Why are you still trying to reach us? Why did you send Jesus? Why did you implement a rescue plan? Why not just let us burn ourselves to a crisp? And then judge us for it afterwards. Because he loves us. Because he cares for us even though he owes us nothing. David, blown away by this, understanding that God created humanity to rule the world, then we rebelled, but he's still interested in us. He's even more because he goes on to explain. He's trying to reason through this. It doesn't make any sense to him. In verse 7, here of Hebrews, which is Psalm 8, 5, he says, You made him a little lower than the angels, and then you crowned him with glory and honor and did set him over the work of your hands. The idea is conveying here is we were not the prime candidate to rule the world, Like, we were not the prime candidates. We were not the most qualified candidates to be in charge, to say, have dominion, subdue, fill the earth, be blessed. The phrase that he made him a little lower than the angels, it means someone with a lesser rank or status. And yet the idea of this word, it's so difficult to convey in English, it conveys that that was only a temporary status. When God originally created humanity, if you were to take it just from a a, a pros and cons basis, like what can man do and what can angels do, angels are going to come out a little bit better, all right? They're going to come out on top. And we see this all throughout the scripture, don't we? When an angel comes around, a human being, the angel's not the one shriveling on the ground, right? Who's normally reacting that way? We are. The human being is reacting that way. And, so, and, and and we are so overwhelmed by their glory and their majesty, they have this, 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 this innate thing to them of how God created them that by nature on the outward appearance, we are definitely lower in status, honor, glory, and rank. And yet God only made us temporarily that way. For it says you crowned him with glory and honor. You exalted him. You lifted him up. Adam and Eve didn't get to that position of being over the earth because they were most qualified or better for the job. God placed them there by his grace. He exalted them to this position where God crowned them with glory and honor, a high status, by setting him over the works of your hands, over creation. The phrase, whom you did set, it's the same word used in verse 2 to refer to Jesus who is appointed heir of all things. Same exact word. God appointed Adam and Eve to this role of ruling over his creation. Now, verse 8, how do I know this is talking about Adam and Eve? David makes it clear. You have put all things in subjection under his feet. The phrase there I have put in Hebrews here is in the aorist tense, which means a snapshot of time in the past. So it's not referencing Jesus in the future. In its, you know, in its comment here, it's definitely res- uh, referencing the past. And, and he explains, for in that he put it all in subjection under him, he left nothing that is not put under him. In other words, what's the scope of humanity's appointed rule? No exceptions. Everything God designed this world to have, everything he created this in this world was to entirely be ruled by a man. That's how he designed it to be in the beginning. So, here's the question. (laughs) We look around, and we see that, don't we? I mean, it's not ruled by a man, it's ruled by lots of different people, lots of different nations, lots of different countries, we're fractured into all these groups. Why is that the case? And why are we so very fractured now? Why is there war? Why is there evil? Why is there pain and sorrow and injustice? Well, even though God exalted us to this role, we messed up big time. And that's what the end of verse eight says. But now we see not yet all things put under him. That's interesting, because that's future. We start in past, but now we talk future. So we are now in a current state where this perfect rule is not only lost from the past, but it is not our present, it's it's our future. What happened? Well, we who are on our own, without God's grace, without his help, without his power, without his influence, we who are on our own were small and insignificant. We rejected the glory and honor that God gave us and we decided instead to take what a far lesser being offered us. Look at Genesis chapter two. Genesis chapter two. Genesis two sixteen and 17. The Lord created Adam and Eve and he gave them one rule. I mean, unless you count the one to, you know, grow and fill the earth and take dominion. That's a positive rule. There's one negative rule here. One, one don't do. Genesis 2.16, and the Lord commanded the man, saying, of every tree of the garden you may freely eat. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat of it. For in the day that you eat thereof, you shall surely die, is what the English says. In Hebrew, it means having died, you shall begin to die. The moment you eat of it, you will die spiritually. Our relationship will be cut off. The exaltation that you experienced will be lost. And? And? From that day, you'll begin to die physically. Now, that's exactly what happened with Adam and Eve when they sinned against the Lord. We'll look at that in just a moment. Now, the question that a lot of people ask is, why put the tree there, Lord? Why put the tree there? Why not just have no options to fail? Well, relationships are only meaningful if they are willing relationships, (laughs) think about this for just a moment. I, I hear people say this a lot, you know, even, even you know, uh, you know, especially when they're struggling, you know, you're struggling to love somebody, you know, and, and you're challenging them, hey, you got to love like the Lord loves, the Lord loves you, and you know, well, I'm not the Lord. and, 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 when it's said, there, there's a thought in my mind. Sometimes, when it's said that you know the individual is thinking, well, like God just has like some some innate contract inside of him, you know, that that binds him to loving us. It's like you know, it's almost like you know, the Lord wakes up and he's like, ah, oh, it's 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 ah, it's another day. Like I, I have to love everyone today. I mean, it's just part of my contract. Like I don't want to love people, but I have to love people because you know it's just programmed into me somehow. Like there's no volition there. There's no will involved in this process. That God has no choice because he's God. You know, it's interesting, Hmm. very interesting, an interaction between Jesus and the Father in the garden where he said, if you're willing, let this cup pass. Isn't that an interesting thought? God has volition. He is a free moral agent. He can choose to do whatever he wants but because that's why we call him god <laughs> he's always chooses love right he is love it's his nature it's who he is he always makes that choice he's always holy he's always good he's always just he's always righteous he's always merciful always it's who he is so when we talk about volition and being created in the image of god that god's choice matters is real it's a, it's a real choice. He looks at me and he goes, I love you. We're not going to get to it this week, but one of the things we're going to learn next week when we look at the wonder of the incarnation is this idea that he's not ashamed to call us brethren. Think about that for a minute. You know, if, if I were Jesus, when, when I got to heaven, you know, I, you, know, the, you know, the big announcement, you know, now introducing, you know, I'd be like, well, <coughs> Ramirez. You know, I wouldn't be proud that because I know me. I know me. And he knows me. He loves me. Every day. No matter what I'm doing. No matter what you're doing. He has set his love upon you. Now, that means if we're going to have a relationship, our choice has to matter too. We can't be programmed. And for choices to be real, there needs to be options. Is the question that we shouldn't be asking is, why did God put a tree there so that we could fall? The question is, is, how amazing is God's love that he'd only put one? Why not 40 or 50 trees? We're not worthy of just one. When you think of how small and insignificant God created Adam and Eve, you think He'd have filled the garden with tons of opportunities to fail because this ain't going to work. You're nowhere near me. You don't deserve a relationship with me. You'll never love me like I love you. And yet God only created one. He filled the entire garden with everything else for them to enjoy. It gave them only one option that they could fail in, one option to choose. No, I don't want it. I don't want all the blessings. I don't want the relationship. I don't want to follow you. I don't want to be crowned with glory and honor. I want to make my own glory and honor. And that's what we see in chapter three. It says in chapter three, verse one, now the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said unto the woman, yea, hath God said, you shall not eat of every tree of the garden? Did God really say that? And the woman said it. You know, the right question would have been, did God really only put one in there? I mean, because we're repeating Satan's question today. It's not like it's, no, one's, no one is a genius who's going, well, if God really loved us, why'd he create a tree that we could fall? Grat's genius, you're just repeating what Satan said. God really tell you, you couldn't eat of every tree? I mean, he created, you know, 17,894 other trees here, you know, and you, can't, you can only eat of 17,800 and whatever number I said, minus one. Not in the notes. And the woman said unto him, she starts off okay, we may eat the fruit of the trees of the garden. I mean, we got plenty. But of the tree, fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, I mean, it's not even one they, they had to work to get to. It was in the middle. You know? It wasn't even, it wasn't like one that was right out in the front yard, you know? Every day you wake up and you see the tree, you had to work to get to it. But of the, tree of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat of it, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. I don't have time to go into the theology of all this here, but she did add to the word of God, and that always gets us in trouble. You kind of get a sense here that there's a possibility that she is, is resenting, thinking God's holding something back a little bit. And here comes the enemy's lie. And the serpent said unto the woman, You shall not surely die. <laughs> That's not what's going to happen. For God does know that in the day that you eat of it, your eyes shall be opened and you will be as God's knowing good and evil. It's interesting. He doesn't say you'll be like God, but you'll be as God's. You, you'll be, you will have a higher status than the one that God elevated you to. He held back. He, he, I mean, you were made small and significant. And he raised you up here, but he could have raised you up here, and he didn't. So if you do this, you'll achieve what he's holding back from you. And so when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, And that it was pleasant to the eyes. And this one always gets me. A tree to be desired to make one wise. I have never looked at a tree like that. I have never looked at my orange tree in the backyard and said, that thing's gonna make me the smartest man alive. And so she took of the fruit thereof and did eat and then gave also unto her husband with her and he did eat. And the eyes of them both, they were opened. Something did change and they knew that they were naked. That sounds like a bit of a disappointing result. Aware of your exposure, whereas before it was fine. Aware of things about you that you were never aware of before that you shouldn't have needed to be aware of. And so they sewed fig leaves together. (laughs) That doesn't sound like a very good solution. I've heard that fig trees are quite itchy and made themselves coverings turn to Ephesians 2 we can look at Adam and Eve and we can go man they were stupid but when we look here we see that we have followed in their footsteps all of us have Ephesians 2 1 now dealing with us and in particular, he's talking to Christians who he's referring to our past life before we knew the Lord. In Ephesians 2.1, he says, and you has he quickened, made alive, who were dead in trespasses and sins. Just like God warned, that's what happened. We died spiritually and we began to die physically the moment we, that Adam and Eve disobeyed. So you, has he made alive, because, who were dead in trespasses and sins. Adam passed that on to all of us. Verse 2 but that's not just his fault. Wherein in time past you walked according to the course of this world. That phrase course is that same word for world in Hebrews 1, 2. It's that idea of this period of time or this present age. Wherein in time past you walked according to the mindset, the, 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 the world you know, of this world is what it says, the, the age of this world. See, instead of living in perfection, we now live in an age, a course, that lives according to the same choices Adam and Eve made, a time period where mankind listens to the lies of the enemy and disobeys God. That is the uh, characteristic of our world, and it's been that way since the fall, and it will be that way until Christ returns to reign. We live in a time period where we listen to the lies of the enemy and we disobey God. For it says, according to the prince of the power of the air, that's the enemy, the spirit who now works in the children of disobedience. That's what angels are, they're spirit beings. Verse three, that's why we can't blame Adam and Eve. Among whom also we all had our conversation or conducted ourselves in times past, before we were Christians, in the lust of the flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind. Exactly what Eve did when she saw that tree. And what she was thinking before she ate it we have done the same exact thing we cannot blame adam and eve because every one of us has repeated their decision to pursue our own desires instead of what's best for our world and so it says we were by nature the children of wrath even as others now that is the awful bad news it's why there needs to be a gospel It's why we need to be rescued why we need good news because you and I can hate what Adam and Eve did, we can hate what the devil did, but we cannot blame any of them because we've done the same thing. And because of that, the Bible says the wages of sin is death. Here's the good news. What is this on a man that you would visit him? For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have life everlasting. Look at Ephesians 2.4 here but God, this is who we were. This is where we were headed. This is what way life was, but God, capital B, (laughs) but God, who is rich in mercy, doesn't give us what we deserve. He still cares about us even though we rebelled against him. He still takes an interest in our lives. He's still actively involved in our lives. He takes responsibility for us, but God who is rich in mercy, why? Because of his great love wherewith he loved us. Even when we were dead in sins, he has quickened us together, made us alive together with Christ for by grace are you saved. You didn't deserve it. He did it as a free gift and he has raised us up. Now we've been raised up together and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. We've been exalted and elevated again in Christ. Everything we learned about last week. So here's the truth. Even though we live in this mess we made for ourselves, we still don't see all things under humanity's rulership like God designed it to be, originally created it to be. Even though we don't see that, we don't have to be frightened or angry or hopeless. Instead, we do what Hebrews 2.9 says. We look to our Savior and to what he did for us. For as Hebrews 2.9 says, but we see Jesus. God designed our world For us to rule it, we blew it, and here's God's rescue plan. But we see Jesus. We may not see the perfect world that God designed when we look out here right now and we see the mess it's in, but neither do we need to look to ourselves as a solution for it, nor do we need to grow hopeless because we realize there's no way for us to fix it on our own. Instead, we see, and I love here that the writer calls him by his human name, Jesus That's the name that was given to the Son of God when he became a man. What did the angel tell Joseph and Mary? You shall call his name Jesus. Why? Jesus is a Greek form of Joshua, Yahushua. He shall save his people from their sins. God is salvation. God is salvation. God in the flesh to rescue us. That's God's rescue plan. Jesus became a man. And it explains who was made, and does this phrase look similar? A little lower than the angels. Same exact phrase that we saw that God, how God created us, designed us. Jesus fully became a man. Fully became a man. Not partial man, not slightly man, you know, not even 98% man. Fully man. And it has the same meaning. For a short time, caused to have a lesser status than the angels. Made him a little bit lower than angels. Not a permanent status, but for a little bit of time, made him, he took on a body, just like we had, and made him, like us, a little bit lower than the angels. This one who had been worshipped by the angels from the dawn of creation now had to be sustained by them as a man. Remember they would come to him and they would help him in these difficult times? He had to be sustained by them as a man. Jesus as a man, the scripture tells us, submitted himself to the law of God. And Galatians 3.19 tells us that that law was administered to man by angels. He was for a little bit of time beneath them in that sense of his status, not his being. Jesus never ceased to be God. His nature, essence, always was God. He was never for a second not God in all of its being. But he status wise submitted himself to the message they gave to man just like we're supposed to like we were supposed to God's rescue plan for this world was to become a man number one and then to have that man succeed in all the areas that we failed for it says in verse 9 that he did this for the suffering of death what did that result in? the same thing that God did for us, elevated, crowned with glory and honor. He exalted him with glory and honor. And it's going to explain that a little bit later. We won't get into that this morning. But it explains why he came a man, became a man for the suffering of death, that he by the grace of God should taste death for every man, that he would operate as we were supposed to as a man, that he would operate as Adam and Eve were supposed to, not because they inherently had anything that made them better than the angels or worthy to rule, but by the grace of God, they would trust the Lord with all their heart, not lean on their own understanding, not listen to the lies of the enemy, but submit themselves to him and have a good rule. By the grace of God, the help of God, the gift of God, all of that, we failed in that. Jesus succeeded. Jesus succeeded. That's why when the enemy came to him and said, listen, since you're the son of God, why don't you turn this stone into bread? Why are you starving here? And what Jesus replied is, I don't, I'm not here to whoop you as God. I'm here to whoop you as man. I'm here to defeat you as man. I'm here to do what man failed to do. I'm going to rest in my father. I'm going to trust my father. Whatever he tells me to do, I'm going to do it. Whatever he tells me to say, I'm going to say it. I'm going to do it as a man should do it, by the grace of God. And he succeeded. He succeeded. He tasted death for every single human being. He finished the work that his father gave him to do, doing it in his father's power and strength. Jesus was a man who was yielded to the Holy Spirit, led by the Holy Spirit, empowered by the Holy Spirit, doing exactly as we were designed to do, but where we failed, he succeeded. And so Jesus, as a result, experienced, tasted death for every man. Jesus' submission to the father living by the power of the Holy Spirit as a man should live. His submission to the Father went all the way to the cross where he literally experienced all the judgment every person of every time period deserved for their rebellion against God from Adam and Eve all the way down to you and to me. And so what we see now is we see a world that hasn't been claimed yet, right? We see Jesus dying for us on the cross living the life we could never live, succeeding where we failed, ransoming us by his blood. But we don't see all things under his feet yet, future. And thus, as we said, this is why Psalm 8 is both how God designed the earth to be and prophecy of what it will be in the end. What we see right now is a world that's still under the control of rebellious men following the lies of the enemy. And that will never be fixed by us trying to take control because we aren't the ones crowned with glory and honor now. Jesus is. He's the one crowned with glory and honor. He's the one who has been exalted. Look at Philippians 3, verses 20 and 21 with me. I love what it says here, explaining how we should live now in this present age, our mindset, the way that we should approach living in a fallen world that has not been claimed yet you know revelation's been so exciting and we'll get to it eventually in you know 2074 or something like that but in chapter 5 we see the scroll the scroll it's written on two sides and sealed with seven seals and someone proclaims who is worthy to take the scroll and to loose the seals and of course, no one is found. Going through the list of all humanity, the catalog of every human being who's ever lived, Adam, nope, Eve, nope, going down all the list, even David, even the good men who've lived, going down the list, nope, none, none found worthy to be crowned with glory and honor. All have failed. And John weeps. And this is not the weeping of, of you, know, you know, you kind of have a little tear that creeps down the side of your eye when you watch the end of a sad movie, you know, it's not the sniffles, you know, because, you know, you see family you haven't seen in a while. The word there in a weeping is the, you know, blubbering, you know, snot flowing, you know, type of weeping where you just lose it, you know? John is absolutely bonkers because he's thinking the world's just going to be like this forever. That's it. I mean, the fall is the fall. Nothing can fix that. And one of the elders comes up to me and says, Don't weep. Here's a tissue. Don't weep for the look, behold the lion of the tribe of Judah, he's worthy to take the scroll and to break the seals. He is going to do something about this world. he's going to fix it. It's his, and he will claim it. we don't see that yet. So Philippians 3:20, for our conversation, our conduct, the way we live our lives, it's in heaven, guys. From whence also we look for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall change our vile body that may be fashioned like unto his glorious body according to the working whereby he is able. I'm not able, but he is able even to subdue all things unto himself. Think about that for just a minute. At some point, all of this world will be under one man's control. Jesus, the Son of Man, What does that mean for us? What does Christmas mean for us? Well, if you're a Christian, surely it means you're gonna rule alongside Jesus, right? That's the promise he made to us. But what Philippians 3.20 and 21 is talking about is how he will change these dying bodies, these fallen bodies, into one like his. And thus, as a part of the prophecy in Psalm 8, we will be subdued by him. Can you imagine what that will be like? Every day is a temptation over and over again. It starts when the alarm goes off. As soon as that thing starts blaring, I'm in the flesh. Whether I snooze or whether I angrily turn it off, either way, I'm in the flesh. We are, in a sense, trapped in these things. Paul explains, he says, even though you want to do the things that God wants, you don't. Do the things I don't want to do and don't do the things that I want to do. And we do have the Holy Spirit to help us. We're being conformed to the image of Christ. We're being changed. But when he returns, the son of man returns, the one who succeeded where we failed, these bodies will be made like unto his bodies and will finally be subdued. I will be subdued. There will be no opportunity for temptation for me. There will be no desire for sin. There will be no desire for any of the things that displeases the Lord. They will be 100% entirely absent from my life because now I and you, if you're a believer, will be subdued. And I say to that, even so, come quickly, whatever it takes. (laughs) Come quickly. And that's what Christmas means for us. That the Son of God, who lived in majesty, became the Son of Man, exalted now to majesty. Jesus didn't need to be exalted as a son of God. You can't. You can't get any higher than that. But as a son of man, he is exalted to that role where he is not just king of kings and lord of lords because he's the son of God and he inherits it, but because he's the king of kings and lord of lords because he's earned it. Where we failed, he is righteous fully. There is no sin in him, the scriptures say, he did everything his father wanted him to do. Now, if you're not a Christian this morning, what does that mean? Well, I know it's not a happy Christmas message, but it means you will experience judgment. And that is why it is so important to listen to the glad tidings of great joy that is Christmas. It's so important to repent and place your trust in Jesus because there's only one way out of the mess that we have created for ourselves. And God loved you so much that he made this way by sending his beloved son to take your place so that you wouldn't have to be judged, so that you could be forgiven. So my encouragement to you this morning is if you're not a Christian this morning, if you're not right with God, don't put it off any longer. This is his gift to you, that he loved you so much that he sent his son to die for you so you wouldn't have to perish, but that you could have everlasting life, that you could be forgiven, amen? amen. amen. We're gonna pray in a minute and I'm gonna give you an opportunity to receive the Lord. So if, if you're here and you, you, need, you want to make that decision, you know, that'll be the time to pray that prayer. As I, I'll, try, I'll lead you in a prayer for that. But before we close and before we bring the kids up to sing to us, you know this is a wonderful future if you've received God's gift but what do we do while we wait for it? (laughs) How do we live in this mess now? Aside from just looking at Jesus, we've got people we gotta deal with, we've got decisions that have to be made, we've got lives that have to be lived. Well, I wanna talk about that next week as we get into the rest of Hebrews 2, and we look at verses 10 through 18 because we're gonna see four things there that Jesus has done for us now, how he is Emmanuel, God with us now. Emmanuel does not mean the baby in a manger or the, the, the king on the cross. It is everything. It's from baby in a manger all the way through his life, all the way to the cross, all the way to now today because he is still Emmanuel and he is still with us. And so next week, I wanna talk about what that means, like how we live now in light of this. So I encourage you to come back next Sunday morning. But let's all stand now and pray and then uh, we'll bring the kids up and they can sing to us. So bless us, minister to us. Lord Jesus, we thank you so much for loving us. We read for the great lover with, you loved us. You are rich in mercy towards us. Lord, we did not deserve anything. Well, Lord, we know what we deserved, but we didn't deserve your love. We didn't deserve your help. We didn't deserve to be rescued. Lord, by the way we lived our lives in our past, Lord, we did whatever we wanted to do. We were led around the nose by the enemy, trusting in his lies, trusting in our own hearts instead of trusting you. Lord, when you'd done nothing to deserve that, Lord, you exalted us when you made us and you loved us when we rebelled against you. Lord, in contrast, we had every reason to trust you and to obey you and to serve you. So Lord, this morning, we remember your great love for us. And we thank you that you had a rescue plan and that you successfully enacted it. We thank you that you are still with us today. And we love you for that. And now with every eye closed, every head bowed, if you're here this morning, you're watching this morning and, and you, you say, I wanna make that decision. I wanna be a Christian this morning, Pastor. Will. I want I want to repent of my sins and give my life to Christ. Just pray with me as I, as I, I, I pray this prayer. You say, Lord Jesus, I thank you that you loved me when I didn't deserve to be loved. I agree with you that I am a sinner, that I rebelled against you just like Adam and Eve did. And Lord, I I don't want to live that way anymore. I want to follow you. And I believe that you died on the cross for my sins, That you tasted judgment for me. And I put all my trust in that. Will you please forgive me? Will you please make me your child? In Jesus' name, amen. Now, if you prayed that prayer, we're going to have a prayer team up here after the kids sing. And I would encourage you to come on up and say, hey, listen, I prayed that prayer this morning. Can you pray for me? What, What do I do next? Where do I go from here? Uh, Don't just leave because the enemy's gonna be after you if you made that decision this morning, you know? But I'm gonna turn it over to Jim now. And so the kids are gonna come up, be blessed. And then I'll come back at the end and uh, dismiss you. But God loves you. He's got a good plan for your life. So let's be blessed by the kids now.